I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Alyssa Fader, the executive director of Rising Organizers, an organization focused on training new and emerging leaders to build power in their own communities. The 2022 midterms are just around the corner, and Democrats are going into this election cycle with quite a few legislative wins behind them. And one big part of that legislative puzzle, often working alongside Democratic legislators, are community organizers. They often help shape the legislative agenda and set legislative priorities. In fact, one of the most famous community organizers went on to be elected president, and that was, of course, President Barack Obama. Alyssa Fader is here to discuss the important role that organizers play generally in shaping public discourse and policymaking, including how organizers and activists have shaped what voters care about for the upcoming midterm elections. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Alyssa Fader of Rising Organizers. Alyssa Fader, welcome. Hello, Jen. I'm happy to be here. So we are less than 90 days away from the midterms, and the polls are showing that Democrats might not do so badly, which would be kind of anomalous since the president's party typically loses ground during the midterms, right? We saw in 2010, there was a bloodbath. I think those were Obama's words during the midterms. And so, but things are going kind of in an unexpected direction, or, you know, maybe they're expected given, you know, all of the legislative wins that Democrats have had. The most recent one was the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, there's been a number of pieces of legislation that we could attribute to things going well for Democrats at this point. We'll see. Right. But one piece of the puzzle that I think is often missing when we get to this point is the role of the organizer. Right. So when you think about the legislation that's passed or the things that people like, what role have organizers played in getting us to this point? That is a great question. And one of the things that I love about organizing and that I like to emphasize for folks is that organizing is not just about accumulating people who agree with you and getting them to turn out, though that can be part of it. Organizing is also about setting priorities for the people in power. And so when we see things like the Inflation Reduction Act, when we see things like the gun package that passed earlier this year as well, those were packages that were pushed by movements. They were put forward by politicians, but movements were the ones that insisted that this was a priority. It is important for us to deal with the climate crisis. It is important for us to have some reaction, something serious, after 19 people are killed in Texas. That is something that only happens when organizers and movements are pushing forward on priorities that matter to all Americans in a way that is deeply strategic. If you break down the Inflation Reduction Act, you can see pieces of legislation because there's a lot in that bill, right? Like you said, you know, gun violence and climate change, right? Where you could look at individual organizers and their work to see how we got to that point. I'm specifically thinking about gun controlling and new gun laws. So is there any specific piece of legislation within the Inflation Reduction Act where you can trace back to organizers' efforts to it showing up in this bill? Yes, The most prominent example that I can think of is all of the folks that are doing organizing around the environment, Green New Deal, climate change, primarily Sunrise, but certainly not limited to them and their work. That is a movement that has been pushing incredibly hard to change really entrenched political dynamics in this country. They have said, the power analysis that we have here is that people with vested economic interests in maintaining the status quo are going to continue to push that forward with their money power. But we, the people, have the power to push back against them if we organize. And so watching that movement in particular grow from being a really small, often very academic environmentalist movement 
to one that is really grounded in mobilizing people and motivating them to call their officials, to turn out at protests and things like that. That has been really inspiring and a really great example of how organizing can set priorities and make new legislation move forward. You know, there was a poll that recently came out that concluded that voters thought that the number one threat to the country was or were threats to democracy, right? And it took the number one spot, you know, taking over concerns about the cost of living. And I I personally think that's huge. That's a huge, huge shift because I've always thought that this idea of democracy was kind of nebulous, right? It wasn't clear to explain to the average person how that was going to help them you know, pay their bills, right? Or, you know, pay their medical bills. And when I think about organizers, you know, trying to explain how a specific issue will affect people's lives on a day-to-day basis, it's easier in a lot of other contexts. Like it's easier to explain like how climate change will affect the person's life or how abortions right will affect someone's lives. How do you think that we got here in terms of people, the average person, the average voter, thinking that threats to the democracy, threats to our democracy was a really, really important issue? I love this question, Jen, and it is the thing that keeps me up at night, quite literally, and so I'm glad that we have the opportunity to talk about it. I think that most Americans thought for a long time that their representative democracy and the system that we live within was working. And I would push back against that because I think that particularly organizers of color have been very adamant and correct in pointing out that we have never lived in a true democracy, though we have lived in democracy that has tried harder and it's trying right now to make sure more people are included. However, one of the things that gives me hope is that people are starting to see the dangers that our democracy is in. And I know that sounds really paradoxical because I know for a lot of your listeners and certainly for me, a lot of the time, this can feel like a really hopeless time when it comes to the state of our democracy. And also, once we recognize that there's a problem, we can start to do something about it. I think we got here because the forces that are organizing around anti-democratic structures, let's call it that, have been doing that work for decades. We are going up against movements that are at their high watermark, movements that have brought in people to overturn abortion rights, to gerrymander states past the point of being able to be democracies, where state legislatures are making it impossible for anyone of an opposing party to govern. Those are not democratic structures. And it has gotten so bad that everyday Americans, people who are not normally attending to this crisis, are starting to see it. They are starting to see the ways in which people are sowing doubt about our elections, or it is becoming harder and harder for people to vote, or our elected officials are not representing us the way that they should because they are representing big money, corporate interests, rather than the will of the people. And that is a nonpartisan issue. That is something that happens across political lines. And because people are starting to really see that as a point of concern, That gives me a lot of hope. That makes me think, okay, if people see that that's a problem, what do we do to help them address that problem? They're active. They have become awakened to the problem of the day. So what do we do? How do we provide those people with a path forward so they are not just sitting at home being scared and frustrated the way that I often do? What are we going to do in order to help them build the country that they want? 
And the answer to that, to me, is organizing. And that is what we do at Rising Organizers. We make it so that it is as easy as possible for people to get engaged in building a stronger democratic society, stronger civic society, and finding opportunities for them to give back to their communities, to build power locally every day. So that is a very long answer to your question, but I think that that's how we got here. And I think it's why it's actually some pretty good news. I agree with everything you've said. And I think this is a really great example of how organizers can shape the national discourse. We saw with the threats to democracy, we saw, like you said, it's been happening for decades. It's been happening for decades and organizers have been trying to hone the messaging around this for decades too and get this message forward. But now we see all tenants of this messaging are aligned. Organizers are speaking about threats to democracy. The media, they're now consistently speaking about threats to democracy and the legislators, right? The government, they're consistently speaking about threats to democracy. And you can see that kind of through line from organizers to the mainstream media to our governing bodies. So I think it's a great example. So your organization, Rising Organizers, you train new organizers and you even have fellowships some fellowship programs. And when I think of organizers, it used to be kind of this non-mainstream idea, right? And people didn't think of it as being directly connected to, at least from my perspective, directly connected to formal government, right? And I remember, and you probably remember this too, back when President Obama came on the scene, you know, he said, I'm a community organizer and people were organizer in chief. Yeah, exactly. People were like, what the hell is that? They scoffed at him. They laughed at him. You know, this was before he was elected, but he got the last laugh because he was elected president. Right. And I think that that was the beginning of a change in perception of what an organizer can do. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that part of what motivates me at Rising Organizers is making this term and this strategy as accessible to people as possible. And I think Obama was one of the first people to really popularize something that had been really well known to, to be frank, political nerds for a really long time, but had not necessarily been part of the mainstream. And there were all sorts of articles that came out in the years afterwards about young people wanting to become organizers and following in Obama's legacy and all sorts of things like that, which I, I think is is related to the fact that he sort of popularized this concept that had existed for a really long time, but folks didn't necessarily know what it was. And that's certainly what we try and, and make happen at Rising Organizers, make sure that people know that this tool exists. We are a nonpartisan organization. We don't approach it from a particular political party's point of view, but we do think that this is a skill that is extremely important for making sure that our democracy functions. So has the profile of the typical organizer changed since Obama came on the scene? I think it has largely stayed the same, to be honest, which is to say organizers remain young, ambitious, motivated people. Our fellowship program, which you mentioned earlier, is a biannual program that we run only for folks in the D.C. metro area that we're looking to grow it. And when people come into the fellowship, 90% of our fellows are under 35. So they remain quite young to this day, even though we don't market ourselves as being a youth-centric organization that is still, by virtue of who has time and energy and interest, it still seems to be a lot of young people. I also think that there has been a really concerted effort across movements to ensure that in addition to being really young, we are bringing in as many young folks of color and folks with other underrepresented identities as possible. I don't know the numbers well enough to know if that has changed from 2008, because I just don't have that data. 
But that is certainly something that is extremely important to us at Rising Organizers and is being reflected in a lot of the other organizing work and hiring that's happening across the scene. So you say you're a nonpartisan organization. I'm curious about that because I've always been curious about how you train conservative organizers differently from progressive or democratic organizers, right? It's just something that, I mean, when I think of an organizer, I think of someone who is progressive or someone who is organizing for democratic policies and legislations and values. So can you explain that to me? I mean, are there, do you have, do you have numbers? Are there more democratic organizers than there are conservatives? So I should say that we are very clear about what our values are, and our values are incredibly progressive, social justice oriented, anti-racist, and have a deep concern for the capitalist structures that have led us here. So I have never, to my knowledge, trained someone who would identify as a Republican, though technically they are welcome in our spaces because if they agree with those values. So the thing that makes us different from the kind of organizing that you're talking about is that we're just not related to a party. We're related to issues. And so we train people to organize around the issues that they care about, which are social justice oriented issues. But it is not my job to elect Democrats, for example. It is my job to make it so that Hannah, whose mother died of insulin rationing and who is a type one diabetic herself, has the skills she needs to build an insulin for all movement that caps on insulin pricing in 12 states. That is my job. And so often when people think about organizing, especially when they come out of the political world, which I do too, they think about organizing in a purely electoral sense. When we would say actually that organizing to turn people out to vote is actually something we would term mobilizing. Mobilizing being gathering people, doesn't matter who they are, as many as possible to get them to turn out for a specific thing, whether that be a protest or voting or anything else entirely. Mobilizing is great, but it's not always the same thing as organizing. Organizing in our parlance is doing long-term systems change with people who share your values. And so our values, which are reflected on the website, are deeply social justice oriented. We have a vision of the world that is more participatory, has greater equity, is able to get us closer to the kind of democracy that we deserve. But it's not about electing one party or the other. It's about moving forward the social issues that impact us every day. I see. So that's a really interesting approach. So given that you're very open and transparent about your values, you probably won't have someone who comes to you and say, you know, I'm really passionate about making abortion illegal. Correct. Right, right. right. <laughs> Nationally. They probably wouldn't find themselves being very comfortable. <laughs> right. So I'm curious about how this works from A to Z. So take someone like myself. I'm passionate about school inequality, right? disciplinary inequities and academic outcomes. How would you take someone like me who says, I don't know where to start here, but I want to make change in the system. Where would we begin? That is a great question. You sound like a prime rising organizer. (laughs) So the way that it works right now is that the best way for people to get involved in this work is to come to one of our trainings. And we will essentially teach you as much as we can in an hour. And then we will have resources that you can follow up with. The better solution is being able to join the fellowship. And like I said, the fellowship is currently only for the DC metro area. And that's why it's so important that we're growing as fast as we can. So in the fellowship, which is a much more intensive version of our public trainings, that version of Jen has a nine session long intensive training operation. She gets at least two coaching calls with experienced organizers during the fellowship. 
And then when she graduates, she gets intentionally plugged in with local organizations that are already doing the work that she cares about. She gets continued coaching from yours truly and other advanced organizers in Rising Organizers so that she stays in the work and is able to apply the strategies that she's learned every day. Now, like I said, that currently is only in the DC area and that breaks my heart. I promise you, it kills me that I have to reject people because of our geographic focus. And also it's why we're trying to grow and that's why we have our public training offerings in the first place. We want to be a place where someone can say exactly that. I know I care about something. I have no idea where to start. What's the answer to that question? I want to be the answer to that question. I want people to say, I'm really lost and confused and I know I'm pissed about something and I know that Rising Organizers is how I'm going to get started. So in terms of, you know, people becoming organizers, what world is ideal to you, right? You want to grow, you want to expand. You know, do you want the average person to think of themselves as being capable of being an organizer at any point? Is it something that they would have to dedicate to full time or, you know, what world would you like to see? The world that you're describing in which people have the skills and can utilize them if they have to is the world that I want to see. I don't think that people need to have organizing be their full-time job. Organizing is not the most accessible career. Many people get started in organizing as I did on a campaign where the pay is challenging. You lose your health care at the end of the campaign. You have to live in some random person's house most of the time. My first supporter (laughs) housing was my parents. I was very lucky in that regard. And so I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that you have to have this be your job. And more importantly, I don't think it's strategic. I think it is more helpful for people who are, for example, I'm working with the ACLU of Kentucky right now, and they have hired three organizers that are from Kentucky, are directly impacted by the criminal justice system, and they are teaching them how to organize. And that is good organizing, is better than someone like me, white girl from New Jersey, showing up in Kentucky with a set of skills that I've learned, because I don't know anything about Kentucky. It is better for doctors and lawyers to know how to utilize this skill in their career than for us to not have social justice-minded doctors and lawyers. And so the kind of world that I'm trying to build is one in which organizing is readily accessible and understandable to everyone. And the reason I want to build that world is because when I was growing up, I grew up in conservative social movements. And I learned about people power from an incredibly young age. I saw the way that it worked. I went to my first protest when I was 12, and that was just part of the fabric of my life. And it's what made me a better organizer. It's what made me a better activist. And it is wrong that, to be frank, rich white girls from New Jersey like me were able to learn that by virtue of the politics that I was surrounded by, rather than because someone was really putting in the effort to make sure that I could build the world that I wanted. So I want to change that. I want to make sure everyone who wants these skills can get them because I promise you, the rich white people down the street from you know how to do this. I promise you that. And I want to make sure that more people can do it too. So, you know, I'm curious as to, you've admitted that it's not very accessible to a lot of people. You have to have a certain level of privilege, I think, to participate, even though a lot of people don't who are organizers. But if you, you're doing this and you don't have income coming in, how are you and your organization making it more accessible to people who may be in that position, right? Who aren't financially sound, who may have to live with someone or parent or something. How are you making that more accessible? The first thing we do is ensure that all of our programs are free forever. One of the greatest pieces of pushback that I get is that we should charge people to come to our trainings. It'll never happen. There's also 
the things that we can't do that I want to do as we grow. So for example, we want to be able to stipend our fellows so they are never having to choose between a part-time weekend job and joining our fellowship. That's currently something that we frankly just can't afford to do. Or in the three, four-year plan, I want us to start to be able to incubate movements and incubate people's benefits so that we can be a part of a cost, some sort of cost sharing mechanism to make it easier for people to continue on their healthcare while they're spinning up their organization before they have the resources to really make it happen. These are all things that are in the plan. But one of the challenges that exists, unfortunately, is that similarly to what you were saying about how organizing can seem kind of opaque, the funding structure around this section of democratic involvement is really challenging. There's been a lot of effort, very rightfully, placed in funding voter registration, voter turnout, and I agree with that. And also, it's not the only way of participating in our democracy. And one thing that I think and I hope that the, let's say, the donor class of the civic engagement world starts to take more seriously is how do we build not just a democracy in which people turn out, but a democracy in which it is healthy? And that involves more than just voting. It involves participatory democracy every day from all corners of civic engagement. As we get closer to midterms, what are organizers focusing on now, right? Because we're in the last stretch. Is it mainly, you know, get out the vote efforts and registering people to vote, like you mentioned, or are there other things to do at this this point in the election cycle? Yeah, so I would imagine, again, I'm at a bit of a distance from that particular side of campaigning, but I would imagine that folks are really spinning up their get out the vote efforts, that they are registering as many people to vote as they can before the deadline, which depending on which state you're in can be, you can register a day of, or in some of the more restrictive states, it's, you have to register pretty far in advance. So that's probably where a lot of folks are dedicating their pre-midterms time. I think something that I would encourage people to think about as well is how do you use this moment as a way to highlight the issues that you really care about? How is it that you are digging deep on where does this candidate stand on what I care about? And how am I going to hold them accountable to it? Right now, I think that folks are really tired. They spent a lot of time fighting for civil rights under our previous administration and are finding it really hard to keep that momentum going. And I think part of that is because we're so disconnected from the issues that we care about. People are really tired right now because we spent a lot of time fighting back fascism at our door during the previous administration. And that fight has not gone anywhere. And so I want people to think about not just how do I get up the energy to get folks out for, during this current emergency, but also understand that the emergency is going to be ongoing. The fight for our democracy is going to be ongoing. And that means continuing to identify how you stay involved in your community all the time, well after November. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I've said this a few times over the last few episodes that people are exhausted. I personally am. Ex I could use a nap right now. Between the pandemic and the last administration, I mean, we were forced for the past five or six years to think about politics all the time. If this wasn't your job, right, if you had some other job that you cared about, you were still forced to think about politics because your life and your livelihood was probably on the line if you were in a marginalized group. So you were forced to think about it. And I think it, that's a really hard environment to get people to stay active or to become newly active. So I applaud your work. And, you know, in closing, what would you tell a person who's listening to this and thinking like, oh, you know, I'm exhausted, but I still really care about this thing. You know, should I get involved now or is this under control? I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I think the thing that I would tell them is to get involved. One of the things that's wonderful about organizing is that you can't do any of this alone. You have to do it in community with other people. And that is what makes it sustainable. One of the things we teach in our trainings, which I hope your listeners come to, is why someone might join a base. We usually say it's because of one of three reasons. The first is that they care about the issue. That is how a lot of people turn up in a place. They say, I care about education. I want to go hang out with the education people. Or it'll be because someone invited them to an event. Someone says, hey, Jan, I'm going to this thing. Will you come with me? Or it'll be because they are trying to figure out how to best utilize their time, which we'd say, so looking for who has the best strategy. But the thing that keeps somebody in the base is all three. It's caring about the issue. It is believing in the strategy. And it is having relationships. And good movement organizing does that. The thing that I think people are missing right now, well, it's a lot of things. But one of the major things is that they feel really alone because of the pandemic, because of the crisis that we're in in our democracy. And there is no better cure for that than organizing. As a bit of an anecdotal proof of that, at the end of our fellowship program, we get feedback from everybody in the class. And this guy at the end of the fellowship, not someone you would typically describe as being a particularly emotional, mushy guy. He said, since 2015, I felt really alone in this work. And I felt really alone because we've been very literally isolated, but also because it really has felt like our politicians are not responsive to our needs. And then I came to this fellowship. And here I met people that cared about the same things that I did or different things than I did, but wanted to approach it in the same way. And I saw all of these people that were interested in building the world that I wanted. And that has made me feel less alone. And I burst into tears. So that's the power of movements and the power of movement work is that you're not doing it by yourself. You have people who can sustain you. It becomes incredibly life-giving as opposed to being incredibly exhausting. And so I really encourage people to find communities and I promise you they're already out there that are doing work that is meaningful to you and build relationships with the organizers in charge. Well, Alyssa Fader, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated this conversation and thank you so much for your work. Thank you very much, Jen. I was thrilled to be here.